All right, welcome, welcome everyone to our fourth installment of Momversations on Race with Erica Madlock Conley, myself, Lori Spicer Robertson. We are so excited that you have decided to join us again, but also that Miss Leslie Brown Rawlings is coming to break bread and information all on class and privilege today. We missed her because the storms took us out. Uh, they took over the internet and the computer and won, won over. So we're now ready and set to go. So class and privilege, I'm sure many of us have our own thoughts, our own perspectives, our own stories. But for me personally, when I think about class and privilege, I go back to early training called Bridges Out of Poverty. And I like to tell people that training changed my life because it exposes you to where you are, what's important for where you are as an individual in class, but then you look about, you look at your community and you also look at the institutions and you look at those who live in poverty, um, middle class and those who are wealthy. And I love that they talk about those who are wealthy because if you've ever done this training like I have with business executives, uh, many of them become offended because they are not necessarily wealthy. They might be rich, but they are not wealthy. Um, so today we will explore what class and privilege looks like, though, uh, in the life cycle of a child. And so I am no expert on this information, but we have an expert here to join us. I will not take up her time, but I'll turn it over to Erica so she can tell you all about Miss Leslie Brown Rawlings. Yes. Yeah, so when we started talking to people, you know, who can we talk to about this? And to find out that Leslie was like right under our nose because we'd known her <laughs> for a long time, worked with her. And they was like, Leslie, Leslie. So we reached out to Leslie and Leslie has worked um, in a lot of different areas, but really focusing on ways to bring inclusion around talent management. Um, she's worked around education um, and just being able to offer herself as a resource as it relates to um, inclusion, particularly. And so class and privilege is something that um, that she can definitely share with us about today. So Leslie, I'm going to turn it over to you because one thing we want to do is make sure that we can provide some framework for these conversations. So can you just kick us off by defining what is class and privilege? Um, and not just when we think about it across different races, but even how it impacts us as Black people. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for having me and then having me back. I appreciate you not giving up on this conversation after the storm took us out. Um, so I'm super, super glad to be here. Um, and just a little bit of framing for those who are joining us. Um, as uh, Lori and Erica said, my name is Leslie Brown Rawlings. Uh, I am based in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and I am mom to two-year-old Wiley. Wiley? Lord, mom to two-year-old Wiley and bonus mom to 17-year-old Jada and 20-year-old Tyler. Um, so really enjoy getting an opportunity to see the experiences um, that show up in our young people's lives from their earliest um, uh, points of life all the way until they mature into adulthood. Um, I work for a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm. 
uh, called Beloved Community, where we support um, folks in really thinking about how they create um, systemic and sustainable um, change towards equity within their organization. And in particular, we work with folks across all sectors, um, but we do have a really deep body of work in K-12 um, and really thinking about um, how does equity show up in the experiences of our young people um, in their schools and how does it affect their families as well. So really excited to bring um, those perspectives into our conversation. Uh, we teased up a little bit in our kind of our, our postponement notification, some of these definitions, but I'll just kind of reframe them for folks, particularly around this conversation. So when we're talking about class, we're talking about a system for ordering people and society based upon perceived social or economic status and power. Um, and I think it's always really important when we're having a conversation around class and around privilege to really anchor on this, this word power and really anchor on what that means for folks' lived experiences and how they are different um, based upon these classifications, right? Sometimes I think, you know, we start conversations sometimes with class folks go to, you know, do you know the right fork to use at a formal dinner setting, right? That's not what we're talking about here today. We are talking about who is afforded advantages in our society and who um, is impacted by disadvantages um, as a result of how they are classified. And I think it's really important for folks to name and note um, that A, of course, we are all born into some class, you know, band, right? We're either born into working class, middle class, or born wealthy. Um, but unlike how folks tend to kind of conceive of our our lived realities here in the US where we have this very kind of bootstrappy narrative about who we are as a nation, the reality is that class mobility is very difficult, especially for black folks, right? Um, the reality is that most folks um, are born into and die into, die within that same class band. And there was actually a study that came out recently that talked about the class experiences of black men in particular. Um, and it looked at the fact that um, overwhelmingly black men are born into working class and they are far less likely over the course of their lifetime to be able to progress up in class to lower middle class, middle class, upper middle class, et cetera as compared to their white peers. So their white peers are more likely if they're born in the working class to be able to transition and have some access to class mobility. And for the small percentage of black men that are born wealthy, they are far more likely to fall out of that class ban in the course of their lifetime as a result of some financial hardship that they will have um, as compared to their white peers who are more likely to, to be able to maintain that status. And that's because of these systems that Lori teased up for us. Um, so when we're having conversations around class, we wanna really make sure that we are anchoring it in a, a conversation around what are the systems that impact folks' experiences and not as much in what are folks' individual responsibilities and decision-making um, around their lives. When we're talking about privilege, we're talking about unearned opportunities or advantages 
that are afforded members of society solely as a result of their social identities, right? So this is around what are the social identities that I hold? What are the groups to which I belong? One of those is class, right? So whether or not I am middle class or working class or wealthy, that is a group, an identity um, that I'm a part of that may either afford me privileges or marginalize me. But we have all sorts of other identities that we carry that impact our experiences, um, race being one of them, which we're going to be talking a lot about that intersection today, but also gender, also um, LGBTQ status, you know, um, sexual identity, also um, nationality, right? We're talking about uh, folks within the Black community, folks who were documented versus undocumented in our society are going to have very different experiences, right? Um, also, level of educational attainment may be one of our many identities that we carry, right? So it's important to really understand um, that these groupings exist and some of them carry advantages with them. Um, and I always push folks to anchor around the fact that both with class and with privilege, right, we're talking about advantages that are unearned, right? Like if we can grapple with and accept privilege, that is to accept that there are folks who have access to some opportunities based upon no individual action that they have taken, based solely upon the fact that they are a part of a group or carry an identity. And there are folks who are experiencing disadvantages, again, based upon no individual um, uh, uh, decision that they have made, right? And we see that that sense of, in spite of um, individual actions, depending upon what are our privileged identities, it can have wildly different outcomes on our life, right? So if you look at data that talks about um, the fact that Black college graduates have similar employment rates as white high school dropouts. Right. And so you have folks who have gone completed high school, gone to college and completed that, but are still seeing similar rates of actually being employed as white folks who have not completed high school. And I always bring up that study to say privilege is not about believing that your life is easy, because a lot of times when we talk about white privilege, people are like, what? I had a hard life. How could I have privilege? Right. Right. So in that study I just named, right, like, if you dropped out of high school, life is not sweet. Like, I can assure you, you've had some challenges along the way. What we're saying with privilege is that whatever privileged identity you hold is simply not one of the things making your life harder, right? You may have right. many other challenges you face, but your identity, which is privilege, is not one of the things that's adding to that. And in this data, we see that because we see a group of folks who have lots of challenges, but because race is not the barrier for them, it becomes an equalizer in terms of lived experience to Black folks who have completed college but do have a marginalized identity, which is bringing down their experiences or bringing down their outcomes. And Leslie, I think what, when I think about from a mom's perspective, one thing that I know that we get caught up in a lot with our children is we are trying to raise them almost to kind of earn this privilege. So I'm sure that's something that we were raised with as well. You work hard. I mean, that's what we're taught from the very beginning. You always have to work twice as hard to get half of the benefit, and that's being generous, right? Um, and, you know, I catch myself 
doing that to my children as well. But what you're saying really is that the data does not reflect that, right? Like we can't really, you know, teach them how to earn privilege. And we need to kind of break down that falsehood that that is what they're working towards. We can continue to raise them to be good people and to work hard and we can lead them towards identifying maybe what success is for them, but they still also have to understand that there may be some roadblocks that that they come upon. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. I mean, there is nothing wrong with raising young people to be hard workers and to have outstanding work ethic. That's absolutely fair. And it's fine to name and understand the system that we all exist in, right? So it is fine to, to be able to explain to our kiddos, like, yes, because of racism, because of institutionalized oppression, because of white supremacy, these are going to be challenges that you will be faced with and you need to be prepared for that. And it may require you to exceed expectations <laughs> in a lot of ways that some of your white peers or those who carry more privileged identities are not going to be asked to do. That's fine to name for kids. But I would say where we want to caution ourselves is that in thinking that um, we are going to be able to um, grow closer to some of that privilege as a way to save ourselves, right? Um, and that's kind of like the, the root, right? I know y'all are going to be talking a little bit of, in a couple of weeks about respectability politics, right? But that's the root of it, right? It is this notion of um, I'm going to try to use respectability as a vehicle to be able to save myself from racism or from the harmful effects of it, right? And so if I dress nice enough, maybe um, someone won't be afraid of, of me or a police officer will not, um, you know, uh, racially um, profile me. If I drive a nice enough car, maybe I won't get stopped, right? But the reality is that like, we know that just doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't work, right? When we look at, um, folks' experiences, there's all sorts of instances that we can point to in the news every single day of folks who were respectable, who, you know, uh, did all the right things that still are um, subject to the harm of racism. Um, and in its most insidious forms, it allows us to, to move through life with a, a stance that says, I'm not going to actually try to dismantle this system that is harmful to all of my people. What I'm gonna do is just try to make the system work for me by distancing myself from the least of these, right? So when we kind of lean into respectability too much, what we say is like, it's okay to treat other people this way, just don't, miss, don't confuse me for one of them, right? And that's mm -hmm. not the message that we wanna be sending to our young people. So Leslie, I have, let's dig deeper into respectability politics because I feel like this has come up a lot lately. It gets under my skin just a tinge. Um, but talk about respectability politics place in generations, right? What's the generational difference that you've noticed? Because I think, and not to make people in generations a monolith, but I think you have older generations who probably live, die, and breathe by respectability politics. And you have younger, um, as the generations grow younger, you slightly move and shift away from that because 
you realize having a seat at the table may not mean that you are going to ensue change that we really need to have, progressive change. And so speak to us a little bit about how you've seen that show up, especially recently. Yeah, so I would first just frame that respectability had a historical role, right? So in a time in which um, people of color, especially black folks, were not allowed access to certain jobs, not allowed access to certain roles in society, right? Where they may have been heavily disrespected in their day-to-day -day life if they were, um, you know, a domestic worker or a janitor or in spaces where they were not allowed the same opportunities as white folks. Then when they came into all black spaces, respectability allowed them to have access to some level of privilege and esteem, right? And so that maybe used to show up like being the deacon in the church, right? Or mm -hmm. if you are a church elder, right? Or maybe you are the president of your sorority chapter. You know, all of these things allow for Black folks to be able to come into a space within our own community and have access to some of the respect that was denied to us um, in our daily lives. So there is kind of this legacy history that's there, right? Um, the challenge is that, again, when it shows up as a mechanism in order to try to protect ourselves, right? Then what we find is that it actually it becomes kind of a very individual approach and not a, um, a comprehensive system approach, right? It says, like I said, it says, you know, I can't do anything about what happens to all the rest of y'all. What I'm going to do is me and mine are going to put on this mantle of respectability and hope that that brings us closer to our oppressors, right? Closer to whiteness, closer to um, power, closer to privilege um, in the hopes that we individually can be saved, right? Um, and we see that a lot when we see um, uh, police um, killings of Black folks. And even within our own community, some of the initial commentary comes out of it is asking questions around, um, you know, well, what was that person involved in? Um, oh, you know, this person was, uh, you know, had some criminal past or they, you know, I, I saw one that said, oh, this person was behind on their child support, right? As though that was a rationale for them being killed, right? Um, or an attempt to try to clean up folks, right? So there's instances where, where, where there are folks who have really beautiful, crystal clear backgrounds, and we try to kind of hang that up and say, this is a good reason why they shouldn't have been killed. Look, there was a Harvard grad, or they had all these things right about them, right? And the reality is that it's not acceptable for anyone, whether they had a pristine background or not right but we mm -hmm. see folks leaning into that um and and having a hard time break breaking free from that especially in the generation but i'll tell you it's showing up with our younger folks too now Lori. It's, you know it's it's not all <laughs> it's not all your grandparents <laughs> i mean you think about um in houston last year there was a principal who put out a dress code for parents coming to school, right? It said things like, you cannot wear a bonnet to school. Now, this is not an old principal. This is a woman who looked to be maybe in her 30s or 40s, right? She's not that old. And I mean, come on now, who 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 wears a bonnet but some Black women, right? Who are you right. saying can't be in this space or is not welcome here but Black women if you say no bonnets are allowed, right? And for what, when we know the data shows that kiddos have better outcomes when they have a deeply engaged parent, 
So if, if kiddos will be more successful when their parents are welcome in their school space and are a part of their learning and a part of their educational experiences, then why for any reason would we tell them that they can't come in here? Yeah, just create another barrier and then come back and say, now the kids aren't successful because the parents aren't around. And unless I know something else that we talked about uh, was, you know, I think from the outside looking in, and particularly right now during this political season, people think more of Black folks as a monolith. So, and we know within our community, there's a lot of diversity, even within our, in our community. But there's also this level of understanding that we do have to approach things collectively or else we're not going to be able to get things accomplished. So that's why you do see people, regardless if they have the PhD, if they have reached a certain level of accomplishment or privilege or access to privilege, that they still are stressed by what's going on in the world. They feel the weight of police brutality. They feel the weight of poverty within our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that we have to collectively approach all of those things, regardless of where we may be sitting at that particular moment. And just our overall connection, you can be successful, but you still have a close connectivity to people who are definitely experiencing in the trenches. I think we all yeah. experience it on, on a certain level. But talk to us a little more about what our community really looks like and then how we have to wrestle with class and privilege as well. Yeah, so I would say one thing that I think that we are all increasingly realizing is that it's important when we're doing work to be doing it with an intersectional lens, which is where we're thinking about and framing with clarity all of the identities that folks hold, right, which is what gets us to this monolith, right, because like I said, there's all those identities between race, class, Um, gender identity and orientation, um, sexuality, uh, level of educational attainment, language dominance, et cetera. All of these things um, shape our experiences um, very differently and shape the needs that we have. And what happens sometimes is that when we are trying to focus in on what it looks like to have our collective impact, but we don't carry this intersectional lens, what we do is actually just uplift the needs and the realities of um, maybe the majority even within our black community, but we leave many other voices and needs and stories out, right? And I give you an example of what that looks like. Uh, So for instance, um, we have been having a number of folks naming, uplifting the, the names of black folks who've been killed by police, Within that movement, you see a disproportionate um, focus on Black men, right? And so if we ran down the list of, of Black women who have been killed, only a handful of names would rise to the top to the level of recognition for most of us. Certainly, if we talk about Black trans women who have been killed, almost none of those names would come to the level of recognition for, most, for, for, for many folks. So if we're trying to design a movement that is going to equally advance and protect all of us, and we're only thinking about the circumstances that affect Black men, whatever the the structures are of our movement, the solutions, the things we're fighting for, they're never going to fulfill the needs of Black women or Black trans women because we haven't even grappled with what is their unique lived experience and how does it show up. We see that with our children. So for instance, 
Um, a lot of schools will have some intentional programming around supporting um, unhoused young people, young people who are temporarily homeless. Typically, that conversation will bubble up as a conversation that has a narrative of um, mom and dad lost their job and the family has been evicted. They might be living in their car. They might be living in a shelter. And uh, we need to figure out what supports we can provide for this family. That is a really lovely, respectable narrative. And the reality is that when we look at unhoused people, the majority of those folks identify as LGBTQ, and then even disproportionately within that group of folks, they identify as either transgender or non-binary. So a set of solutions on how you support unhoused youth who have been kicked out of their homes or do not find their homes to be a safe space are wildly different than that first narrative I described. But it's because we are um, not comfortable with grappling with gender identity, with sexuality, we say, oh, that's, we don't want to have that conversation. We just want to have this conversation over here. Whatever next step solutions we come up with will completely miss the target audience that we actually need to be serving. It will completely miss the most vulnerable and the most marginalized within our community. Um, and we see that a ton with Black folks in movement work, right, where we'll have folks say, um, and, and even if we take it outside of Black folks, right, and think about um, uh, the suffragist movement with women, right? So if your message here is, well, we need to stand in solidarity as women and uplift our push, and we're saying, yes, and also as Black women, this is our unique set of experiences, and we need you to stand with us on that. And you say, no, 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 we only going to focus on one thing at a time. And today we're just <laughs> focusing on women, right? And we see that within Black folks where, where we'll have a whole body of work moving forward that will be um, very um, patriarchal in its, in its um, execution, right? And so when Black women, when um, Black queer folks come forward and say, actually, my needs are not the exact same as as a black man, my needs are actually um, very diverse and unique and I need you to take those into account. And we say, wait, 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 let's not focus on that stuff. Let's just focus on the black stuff. We'll get to the women later. We'll get to the you know, LGBTQ you know, uh, folk later. That is never gonna be a solution that actually um, is equitable you know, at, the, at the end of the day. That will never be an equitable solution. So we need to be um, united in how we approach the work, but we can only be united when we approach it with this intersectional lens that says every member of our community is important. Everyone across that monolith matters, and therefore we're going to uplift the needs and the stories of all folks, not just the majority of our marginalized um, Black community. And I wonder, too, uh, go ahead, Lori. Well, I was just going to not piggyback, pick up off of what you shared from the suffrage, <laughs> um, because I think we've seen, you know, one of the things we're exploring right now is just the movement of now and the movement of before and how very similar to what you said, you know, Black women, when we tried to pass the 15th Amendment, it was really about can Black men vote, right? And so Black women were like, yes, let's pull people together. Let's make that happen. White women were upset about it. So then we were like collaborative and saying, here's our chance. We're going to push to make sure all women can vote. And as we know, with the 19th Amendment and really a lot of the suffrage work, 
uh, black women specifically, and especially women of color, if you really dig deeper, you'll see that Native American women um, or indigenous women had their own structure already in place that white women identified and said, well, we need that as well. And so 19th is passed and we still don't have our chance. And so fast forward to today, I think we see that bubble up in the movements that we are having going on now about social, economic, and all the other justices that have surfaced. But I want you to also touch on the different phases of privilege, right? Or the different faces of privilege, because often when we talk about privilege or class and privilege, most people of color relate that specifically to white privilege. Um, and when we start to talk about people of color have privilege, it's almost the same conversation if you're having with a white person who says, no, I had humble beginnings. Um, or I like <laughs> Tyler Perry said when, People say you have humble beginnings, that means you were dirt poor. So um, same thing, right? I think black people, when you try to associate privilege with them, um, you are met with the same resistance. So can you speak a little bit about that and how that also affects um, this intersectionality and how we show up in these movements and this fight for change? Yeah. Um, that absolutely is um, a reality that it can be really difficult for Black folks to grapple with the privilege that they have. Um, and in part, some of that is because um, a lot of folks are not that far removed from those humble beginnings, right? They either came from them themselves or their parents did, right? And so, you know, there are a whole body of folks who are like, you know, I, I might not have grown up in the hood, but my grandma still lived there, so I can go back anytime. Right? <laughs> and so, right. You know, it can be really difficult to process, though, that your current lived experiences um, are different because of some privilege, particularly class privilege. So, for instance, um, we've talked about what it means to be able to care for um, young people and kiddos in the midst of COVID when folks are quarantining and working from home, right? Um, and so uh, there is a whole body of Black folks who are dealing with the challenge of working from home with kiddos. It's not effortless. It's not easy, right? But it certainly is not the same as saying, I have a job that requires me to show up every day um, out of the house if I don't do that, I will lose my job and we will not be able to have food or pay our bills, right? And I'm trying to figure out how I ensure that my children are in a safe space um, while I am, while I'm out of the house, right? That's wildly different than, you know, like we said, trying to figure out what's the best corner of the house to be able to get the good internet access, you know, or, you know, the difficulty of being like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do I manage my work room schedule and my kiddos virtual learning room schedule, right? Like those are frustrations, but very different ones. Um, and so it's important for, for Black folks to recognize that there is that diversity of experiences in part because it creates opportunity for us to be able to leverage our privilege in order to advocate for all members of our community, right? So this moment of uh, grappling with COVID um, has really in some ways been a little bit of an equalizer because there are folks with privilege that are dealing with challenges that folks who are working class have dealt with for a long time, right? So like all of us are like, oh my God, it's so hard with kids. And, and it is, I'm not, not debating that. 
but working class women have been beating the drum for decades saying, if I don't have access to childcare, I cannot work. <laughs> I cannot go to work, right? There have been a whole body of folks that have been advocating for universal um, uh, childcare, universal access to preschool for kids for years, and that was not a part of the national conversation and wasn't a priority prior till now. Um, but we as privileged Black folks have an opportunity to be able to say, while that may not be my lived reality, I can see it in those around me. I can see it in my cousins. I can see it in my family. I know what folks are grappling with, and I can use my voice and my privilege in order to push for some change. Um, and I always like to uplift people, so I want to uplift um, First Aid Memphis, which is an um, organization here in Memphis that is committed to making sure that kiddos have access to all of the essential uh, resources and supports that they need in the first eight years of life, which in part is funding free full-day year-round child care for kiddos um, uh, ages one through five. That is huge and transformative in the lives of every one of those parents who are disproportionately women and disproportionately people of color um, that are gonna be able to have access to that. So I would say we definitely want to be thinking about the importance of, of leveraging our voice. Um, the other thing that I would say is that we do name in the work that we do at Beloved Community what we call the R factor which does speak to race in particular, right? So oftentimes when we're talking about identities with folks, uh, folks will say, well, why do we keep calling out race? I mean, like we have all these other marginalized identities that exist, why do you keep naming race? So we do name race as almost like an exponent in terms of how it impacts the outcomes of one's life. And you can have two people who share a set of marginalized identities, but have a diff have different races that will have wildly different outcomes, right? So if I gave you the image of um, a queer undocumented woman, two queer undocumented women, those are three marginalized identities that each hold. But if one is a white Canadian woman and the other is a black Nigerian woman, the way that their experiences are going to play out are wildly different. Um, so I never want to, you know, uh, uh, fail to name that race in particular can um, have an overarching effect on your experiences and your outcomes in life. Um, but as you said, even within our experiences as Black folks, um, our privilege uh, will definitely impact how we're, how we're able to show up and navigate a space and create opportunities for us to to advocate for others. Um, and I would say it also is important for us to be really aware of that so that we are, um, as we're trying to do that work, not speaking down to folks um, who don't carry those same privileges, right? So I think about last week was Black Breastfeeding Week, right? And so there is a whole uh, movement around breastfeeding for Black women, uh, which is in part a big shift because um, of our kind of traumatic experiences serving as wet nurses and the like, right? So it's, it's a, a resurgence in our community. And to be a breastfeeding mom is is to be a privileged mom, right? Like, right. The reality is that to be a woman who can work and breastfeed means that you have to have a job that allows you that time away from your work. You need to be able to afford a pump. You've got to have a safe space to go and a job that creates that space. You have to be able to have a way to store this milk. 
Um, you know, we here in Memphis have a utility company that's looking to turn off the power of some 30,000 customers. So if you are a mom with some stored milk in the fridge, it's a wrap for that. That's all spoiled now, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about like who has the access to do that, we can't just kind of beat a drum that says, well, breast is best. This is what's good for your kids. Okay, sis, but I also need all these other resources and supports to make that happen. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and being milk. humble enough. To I was going to say that spoiled breast milk will make any mom angry. If you've ever had to <laughs> bring you to your knees, whole new movement. it will. <laughs> And it's hard. And then think about the support system that you also have to have built in. You know, I mean, you okay. literally cannot get up and get yourself a glass of water. Like you have to have a support system there with you as well. I mean, it goes on and on. And so we cannot, you know, guilt people into things without thinking about the full picture. And we can't, I mean, it's just another thing to just kind of, you know, beat women, particularly black women, women of color down when it's like, it's it's much more to it than this, right? I mean, I think anything that we kind of talk about as it relates to race is not just a uh, surface level conversation. It's not just, oh, you should have done this or you should have done that. And I want to go back to what you were talking about as it relates to education and privilege, and particularly with this virtual education that we're all tackling right now, right? Um, and I mean, today, just a, a quick moment, my husband, and I, we were talking about the Wi-Fi kind of going in and out. And then we realized, oh, we have all these different hotspots. So between the Wi-Fi box that we had and the hotspots next to our phone, along with our you know, wireless that we have in the house. And he said, man, this is a privilege. We basically have like a, almost a one-to-one ratio of hotspots to devices in the house. And that was, I mean, we kind of both stopped and we were like, everybody doesn't have that, right? So we're even looking at the way our current experience is exasperating privilege and the divide. Lori talks a lot about the digital divide. What are some things, really, from both of y'all, do you think that we can do to really address what is currently happening with parents and to kind of offer that support that is needed? And maybe even share some of your struggles, Lori, that I know you're right in the beginning trenches of it. I told y'all I had a meltdown yesterday. Today's a better day. <laughs> Leslie, you go first. The meltdowns abound, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so you're thinking, you're uh, wondering what we can be doing in order to support folks across um, across our community during this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say first is to be aware of who are the folks within your local communities that are doing good work um, and that are creating um, pathways to access for um, our young people. There are um, uh, folks that are making sure that technology and devices are accessible to young people. There are some places that are creating, um, opening their doors to um, give kiddos access to places where they can get um, reliable um, Wi-Fi or um, safe spaces that kiddos can be in if they have parents that have to go out um, to work and cannot stay home, right? And this ranges from churches to um, uh, YMCA, et cetera. So I would say be aware of what those institutions are in your community and, um, and support them. I also would say one of the things that we've been working with schools really closely on is 
pushing schools and those who are doing work on behalf of young people to create the space to hear directly from young people and from their parents about what are their needs and what solutions would best serve them, right? Like sometimes it is the work of the privilege that we'll spend our wheel spending a lot of time figuring out how we can solve something on someone else's behalf instead of just saying, hey, uh, you know your life, you know your reality, why don't you tell me what your needs are? Um, and we'll lean into doing that, right? So I would say to the extent that any of us do work or have spaces where we can uplift the voices of um, folks who, um, whose voices are otherwise silenced um, so that they can be able to name for themselves, here are the things that um, would make my experience um, impactful um, or more successful, I would name that. Um, the last thing I would say is I think that there is a whole body of work around advocacy and pushing um, our, our schools to own a responsibility for equitable quality education, in particular for all kiddos. Um, we know that one of the reasons that integration works is because um, when you have resources that cannot be um, pulled just with one set of folks um, that have to be distributed to all the folks that you get um, better quality for all kiddos, right? So oftentimes we have black folks that will be advocates of intentional desegregation programs. They're not saying like, oh, I think it would just be great for my child to be in this diverse environment. They're saying, no, I know my child gets access to better things when they sit in the desk next to this white child because that child gets better things, right? And so that happens even within class, right? So even when we see neighborhoods that are you know, going through some levels of gentrification um, or our mixed income, right? With any mixed income neighborhood, um, we know that to the extent that families of privilege continue to opt into public services um, or lend their voice and their privilege to holding institutions and public services accountable, that all kiddos get access to better things. So this is a moment, especially for folks who have kiddos in, um, in public schools, et cetera, to say, um, you know, this mom over here who uh, works at the grocery store, she can't come to this parent meeting, uh, but I'm gonna be here and I'm gonna tell you exactly what we need for every one of these babies, hers included, right? Like leverage that privilege in order to hold folks accountable um, and advocate. And I will add to that, that's a great point, Leslie, because I think Part of the genesis of these mom conversations was really that, right? Erica and I had all these moms saying, who didn't even have kids necessarily in Shelby County schools or public schools, but they realized that coming down the road, and really at that time, it's the beginning of COVID, that this was going to be a challenge for everyone. And so I think some of the lines that are walls that were previously up have now been lower because across the boards, across the board, parents are struggling, right? They are, you don't have your routine. You can't tell your kids that things are going to be better in a month or two months or by the end of the year. You really don't know. And so I think, and we shared this in the last one, is that the village has returned and that to make any of this work, it's not, you are not enough. Your no. spouse, a partner is not enough. Um, you need a true village around you. Um, 
and really checking in, right? Checking in with other mothers. That's my new thing is I send a text to mom and say, hey, I'm just checking in, making sure you're okay. Um, I needed to check in on myself yesterday. It was, it just <laughs> went, <laughs> it went downhill I was like, you have a moment yesterday. I was like, let me call her, but let me let her have a, a moment to decompress. You did, you did. <laughs> Thank you, friend. Yeah. <laughs> I just went to sleep. Yes, the village um, is needed. I feel like folks who I know folks who um, have had their their mother or their in laws with them. Uh, my parents live in Atlanta, so I've been <laughs> deeply missing that. But I'm like, yes, having grandma live with you is the cheat code. Why did we ever move away from this? This is clearly the better solution. Why did we ever come into society? <laughs> I would say it on every conversation that we have, having my mother, Catherine Matlock, right here in this house, has been, I mean, that has saved us. I mean, we're just navigating through having a virtual preschooler <laughs> and two boys who have real work to do, um, and then having jobs that we have to tend to as well. I mean, you have to have that village. And I think that's just something that you're seeing again, that that's across all class, all privilege, and you just have to have it. It doesn't matter how smart, how efficient you are, how type A, how much of a boss woman you are, you have to have help when it comes to this situation. It will bring you, it will bring you down. Yeah, it will. And if you don't have that health right, then you will see instances which we do see within our community of folks who have um, higher mental health issues, right? Higher rates of mental health issues, higher rates of high blood pressure, right? Other sorts of stress, all these other things that are coming from um, being under constant stress in your daily life, which can be a part of just simply life as a Black person, life uh, as a person living in poverty, but then on top of that, like life as someone who doesn't have that connective tissue. Um, oftentimes for folks who don't work with kiddos, we talk about adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And what are the set experiences that young people have that can lead to trauma and how do kids manage through trauma, right? And like the way you're like all brains, but especially little people's brains work is that you get, um, you get exposed to like a stressor and then you kind of learn, okay, that's not actually going to be so bad. Like something, something safe happened around me and that builds resilience, right? Cause they're like, oh my God, something scary happened, but then it worked out, right? Mom was right there. Um, and that makes me not as afraid, right? But that thing that has to happen that makes kiddos feel the safety in order to build resilience is often based upon relationships and this connective tissue that we have, right? And so when you look at some data, like this past weekend was the 15-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. And when you look at data around the trauma um, and the, uh, the experiences of kiddos who were impacted by Hurricane Katrina, as compared to the trauma for kiddos that were impacted by the tsunami um, in Japan some years just before. You see wildly different outcomes in terms of the stress levels of those kiddos because families that were impacted by Katrina were wildly dispersed. People were put on buses and sent all across the country. Some folks made it back together. Other folks have stayed dispersed, right? So that connective tissue and that relationship to say, I experienced something scary, 
but I have this community whose arms are around me to help me feel like it's going to be okay. That was not there. Whereas families that were um, evacuated as a result of the tsunami evacuated very much as whole communities, like whole villages evacuated together. So those kiddos had this safety. They had this, this connective tissue around them that says, yes, something frightening is happening, but because I'm surrounded by everyone I know and love, I'm getting a sense of, of care about um, uh, my ability to grapple with and manage through this stress, which actually allowed them to have higher levels of resilience because of how they were able to process that trauma. Um, so even in a moment like now where folks tend to not fully recognize how much of a trauma living through a pandemic is, the extent to which young people have the connective relationships, the family around them, the village around them uh, to help them to grapple with the scary thing that's happening will wildly impact the lifelong trauma um, or stress that this experience is causing. And I will add, uh, I was in a parent forum, I think last week or maybe the week before, but I think this whole two-way engagement that you've referenced is so important around this village. One, for us to reach out to our school system, uh, our teachers, other parents, but then vice versa. I think if our school system is in need of something, there are a number of parents, people in the village who may not be parents who are willing to help you don't know what you don't know. And so I think um, we have to have that two-way engagement because at the end of the day, it's about educational success for our kids. And so how can we all wrap our arms, hands, everything around them to make sure they are navigating this unknown um, in a happy, joyous place as much as possible? So. And I think too that we also have to acknowledge you know, how privilege has shown up in the pandemic, right? So I think at the beginning, the first, you know, we were all on lockdown. I think we all had very shared experiences, but now we've started to see how privilege has started to impact the pandemic. Um, you know, some people are like, oh, I'm actually, you know, saving a lot of money because I'm at home every day and not going to lunch and, you know, or they're looking at the fact they're able to quarantine at a vacation home versus, yeah. you know, being in their house or still being ex being able to experience the fact that, well, I really don't know anyone close to me who's had COVID or died from it, where many of us might be kind of paralyzed by fear because every time we log on to our social media, we see someone who is sharing about the experience because it has impacted Black folks more so than it has other people. And so we're dealing with all these kind of traumas on top of traumas and it's just the privilege is starting to seep in even to the overall pandemic beyond who are the essential workers and all of that, but just on every level. And again, we're seeing it now with education. So it's just a lot to navigate through. And it does impact, you know, how we show up every day in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. I completely, completely agree with that. So Leslie, we only have a few more minutes. Any last comments around class and privileges you want to make sure we walk away with tonight? Uh, and you're not really leaving. It's not like we're at an event venue, so you're not walking out of the building. You're just going to walk away from your computer to go do something else. <laughs> but things that you want to make sure uh, are top of mind for us, especially 
all of us being the village at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, things that I kind of name as being really top of mind are, um, one, this is like really complex stuff and kind of navigating our way through it, um, especially as um, Black folks and Black parents is an ongoing journey, right? And so um, even as we uplift um, the challenges, our, our learnings, you know, grappling with our own privilege, um, dealing with respectability politics, right? It's not a linear journey. It's not like, oh, I figured out all the things and now I'm, you know, set to be the best Black person I can be, right? The reality <laughs> is that we all are kind of working through trying to figure out how we can raise young people who are going to grow into adults that will have a positive impact on society um, and be healthy, whole, um, and alive. And unfortunately, in our nation, we have to we have to actually say that and also alive, right? Um, and we're trying to figure that out, right? Um, and it's complex and it's stressful. I find myself, um, you know, even thinking back when I when I first started taking my son to daycare, and he started daycare at 12 weeks old. And uh, because of my schedule, I had more flexibility during the day. My husband was had to be at work at um, hours that required me to be the drop off pickup person. So they saw me most of the time, and I would find myself. Um, even with a 12-week-old wearing my wedding ring every time because I was like, had this like embedded fear that um, will they treat my son differently if they think that he somehow doesn't come from this like nuclear stable black family, right? Like if they think that I am a single mom, if they see me as a statistic or something, will they treat him differently? Right, which gets into that 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 problematic respectability politics because it says, oh, well, if I wear my ring, then you treat my son okay, but you can, it's okay to treat someone else who's not, right? And I still am constantly like plagued by like, what are the right decisions I can make for him? Should I send him to public school? Should I send him to private school? How do I send him to a school that's diverse? I don't want him to be the only little brown boy there. All these things, right? Um, to try to figure out what are the right set of inputs and experiences that are going to produce um, a young man that um, uh, will be healthy, um, whole, and joyful, um, and also um, uh, committed to, to bettering others, right, the, the, the one, or bettering our society, right, who will see his time on this earth as about more than just himself. Um, and so all that's a lot, right? And so the real final word here is for moms, uh, be kind to yourselves because every single day we're carrying, you know, a 10 pound sack of stress that says, <laughs> am I doing all the right best things for these little lives that were entrusted to me? Um, and that in and of itself can really start to take its toll. Um, so I would say for moms, even in this moment, as you're trying to think of what's the village, what are the supports for your little people, think about what is it that you need, what is your self-care, um, what stakes do you need to put in the ground to protect yourself and to protect your mental health. Um, don't be ashamed to raise your hand if you need mental health support. Um, you know, I, I would deeply encourage moms to be aware of um, our own needs and, you know, put your mask on first. It is necessary. Absolutely. 
Well, Leslie, thank you so much for sharing on class and privilege. We know we probably could have had like a three hour conversation about this, but mm -hmm. you helped us out a lot because you supplied a lot of resources. Um, so I know one is um, a podcast by New York Times, Nice White Parents that you highly suggest. And I've gotten this suggestion from lots of people as well. Um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is another one that um, you recommended. So we have a huge list. Um, I know some people watching are currently on our email list, but if you're not, um, you can email Erica, E-R-I-K-A at wonder, W-N-D-H-E-R.com. We'll add you to that list. We'd like to send out kind of a follow-up recap with all of these resources. And Leslie has provided um, a lot of resources. So you'll be able to you know, be a scholar on class and privilege um, when you finish going through those. So Leslie, thank you again for um, joining us tonight. Thank you for being flexible with all of our issues last week um, due to the weather. Um, and we definitely look forward to the next conversation. So, Laura, do you want to wrap us up and tell them what to look forward to? Yes, I think Leslie didn't even know, but she was giving great segue into the next conversation. So I will give you all a, a quick precursor. September's a little different for conversations uh, on race than the other month. Somehow we got off our schedule, so we have uh, another, <laughs> who knows how. We're being kind to ourselves, though, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so we have another conversation next week. Really excited about that. We talked about trauma. Uh, we talked about ACEs, and so that conversation will dig deep into mental health. Uh, I think we'll explore it for both parents, mothers, but especially our children, because this is hard for us. As I, I shared, I had a meltdown yesterday, but just imagine I didn't have that meltdown in our home because this is tough on our kids as well. And so we want to help make sure that this is a great experience for them and that they don't walk away from COVID and their virtual learning um, having added stress and trauma because we know that that will come in life. So join us next week, same time, same place. Uh, we will get into the ACEs and mental health. Thank you for joining us on our Momversations on Race. Uh, have a great evening. Be kind to yourself. And if today was not the best day in your virtual learning experience, guess what? You're blessed to see tomorrow. It'll be a better day. So, good night. Yes, good night. Thank y'all. Thank you.